Hello, Cross Point City Church. It is so good to be with you all. And uh, part of the reason it's so good to be with you is because, um, well, I love your pastor. I love Pastor James. Um, I love being partnered with him through, uh, through New Thing. Um, I love your heart for reaching people that are far from God. We share that in common. I also love your kingdom priorities as a church, that you're about church planning and expanding uh, the, the, the both local and global kingdom. I love that. And it is an honor and a treat for me to be with you uh, today. And I was thinking about if I could only give one message and if I could only uh, tell one story and if I only gave one word, I know what message I know what story and I know what word that I want to focus on. And I'm going to start with that word. And the word I want to focus on, and you can just say this after me, and it's a big word. There's probably no more important theological word. It may be small in size, but it is big in impact. And here's the word. Just say it after me, wherever you are right now. Grace. That's the word, grace. I want you to to think about this word, grace. Um, Grace has been called by theologians uh, the last best word. I love that, the last best word. And they call it the last best word because every use of the word in the English language kind of hints at the bigger meaning of this word. And we use grace in a lot of different ways. Think about this. Uh, Many people, we say grace before meals. Or we are grateful for someone's kindness. And we are gracious when we're hosting friends in our homes. Uh, And when a waiter takes good care of us at a restaurant, we leave a gratuity. And all of those things hint at the bigger meaning of this powerful word, grace. Or how about some of these? A a songwriter may add grace notes to a music score. If an inmate is pardoned, it's actually declared an act of grace. Now, when a mortgage company extends you an extra 15 days to pay your mortgage, it's called a grace period. All these things hint at the bigger meaning of of this so important word. And we also learn a lot about grace from its opposites. Uh, For example, Harvey Weinstein has been in the news a lot this last year, and he's been referred to as a disgrace. When a person uh, is convicted of crimes against the government, they're officially proclaimed persona non grata, which means a person without grace. Now, when theologians define grace... They'll define it this way. Grace is this, the free, undeserved favor of God. The free, undeserved favor of God. Brendan Manning, who's one of my favorite authors on this topic of grace, he wrote a book called All is Grace, and he explains grace this way, and lean into this. This is so good. He says, grace is this, that the God of Jesus loved you beyond worthiness and unworthiness, beyond fidelity and infidelity, that he loves you in the morning sun and in the evening rain, that he loves you even when your intellect denies it, when your emotions refuse it, and even when your whole being rejects it. God loves you. Take this in. Take this in right now. God loves you this moment just as you are and not as you should be. Philip Yancey, who probably wrote the book that most, in many ways, shaped my thinking on grace, It's called What's So Amazing About a Grace. And he lays out the best way to understand grace. And this is kind of interesting as a communicator. He says, grace can be dissected as a frog, but the thing dies in the process and the innards are discouraging to any but the purest of scientific uh, scientific of mind. He says, so for that reason, 
When explaining grace, I rely more on story than on reasoned explanation to explain grace. More on story than reasoned explanation. Well, I've given you the theological definition, but I want to, so I want to try something a little different to go along with that theological definition, the free, undeserved favor of God. I want to tell you a few stories. Why? And here's why. There's an important reason. I think this word is so big, grace, that I want it to not just make sense in your head, but I also I want it to move your heart. Philip Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, at the very beginning, he talks about a friend of his from Chicago, where I live, who was a social worker. And there was a young woman who was assigned to come and see him, this social worker. And this young woman, she was homeless, uh, she was sick, uh, she was unable to buy food for herself or for her two-year-old daughter. And through sobs and tears, she began to explain to the social worker how she had sold her own body and now she was caught in this, in, in, in this, in this ring of prostitution. And even at times, she admitted she'd rented out her little girl. And then she explained, I had to do it. I had to do this to support my drug habit. And the social worker, he'd heard a lot of stories in his lifetime, but he could barely stand to hear such a, a sordid and horrible story. And part of it was because he knew that in hearing this, he would be legally liable. He would have to report this case as child abuse. But he also knew that he had no idea what to say in response. And so kind of grasping at straws, so to speak, he asked her, well, have you ever thought about going to church to get help there? And the social worker said, I'll never forget the look of pure naive shock that crossed this young woman's face. She said, church? Church? She mocked. Why would I ever go there? I already feel terrible myself. They would just make me feel worse. Why would I ever go there? Church. I already feel terrible about myself. They would just make me feel worse. See, some of you, you know what it's like to be around religion where there is no grace, where there's only rules and expectations, where there's lots of guilt and shame. And in fact, you could take me to the church. You could tell me the moment when you experienced it, where there was no grace. And if you know what that's like, that's exactly the kind of world that Jesus came into. A world where religious leaders and religious people had lots of rules, lots of expectations, and it resulted in lots of guilt, lots of shame, and no grace. And if you were ter feeling terrible about yourself, they would only make you feel worse. The Pulitzer Prize and Nobel Prize winning author Ernest Hemingway he was born into a very religious family, but they did not understand grace. His parents and his grandparents actually went to the same Christian college that I graduated from, and they would never miss a Sunday. They were devout believers. They were leaders in their church. Hemingway, on the other hand, he was renowned for, a, for, for wild living and, a, and just a decadent kind of lifestyle. Hemingway's mother detested how her son lived, so much so that she refused to allow him in her presence. In fact, one year for Hemingway's birthday, she mailed him a cake along with a gun. The very gun that Hemingway's father had used to kill himself. Another year, Hemingway's mother wrote him a letter explaining what a mother's life is like. It's like a bank, she wrote. Every child that is born to a mother encounters the world with a large and prosperous bank account, seemingly inexhaustible. But then she goes on to explain that the child makes withdrawals, but no deposits. 
in those early years. And so later on, now that the child has grown, he has a responsibility of replenishing that account. And so he explained to her, here's how, son, you can replenish your account with me. You should buy me flowers. You should buy me fruit and candy. You should pay my bills. And above all, stop neglecting God and my Savior, Jesus Christ. It was said of Hemingway that he never got over his hatred for his mother or for his mother's God. Now, maybe your family wasn't quite like that, but perhaps you do know what it's like to grow up in a family or an environment where love has to be earned, where love depends on how little bad you do or how much good you accomplish, where love is granted if you meet the expectation. You know what it's like to grow up in a place where there is no grace. Let me ask you this. Did you, did you get a chance to watch The Last Dance? I mean, there hasn't been hardly any sports on, right, for the last several weeks. Did you get a chance to watch The Last Dance? It was, it was the ESPN 10 episode kind of deal on, on, the, on the, the glory days of the Chicago Bulls. And, I, and I'm, I'm from Chicago. I'm a Bulls fan, so I watched every one. And I can remember back in the day going to the United Center in Chicago and watching your Atlanta Hawks, right, with Dominique Wilkins, the human highlight film, playing against Michael Jordan. Ah, oh, I mean, those were the glory days. Well, we were talking about this last dance, which was a lot about Michael Jordan in our small group. And, and where did Michael Jordan's relentless competitiveness, where did it come from? And we couldn't help notice what Michael Jordan said about his older brother and his dad. And he talked about how he'd always compete against his older brother, Larry, in almost everything, but particularly in sports, and so much so they would fight. I mean, literally, they would just fight each other then. And Jordan mentioned how his dad always gave his older brother lots of attention particularly because his older brother Larry was really good at mechanical things and Michael wasn't. And Michael said he would actually try to go in the garage with, with him, with Larry and his dad. But then his dad would tell him, Michael, hey, you just, you just go back inside the house with your mother. And Michael said this. He said, I so badly wanted my dad's approval. I just wanted my dad's attention. Could that be what drove MJ? The need for love? Because it's interesting if you watched it or you know the story, when his father died, when Michael Jordan's father died, is when he quit playing basketball and he started playing baseball. Why? He said that was the sport that his dad always wanted him to play. It's kind of amazing the things we'll do for love when there is no grace. So there you have it, three stories. A story of shame that describes a church as a place that would only make me feel worse. A story about a legalistic home that drove someone to hate God. And a story about someone who worked harder than anyone else just to be loved. And all are reminders that there's not much grace in this place. And see, that was exactly the kind of world that Jesus came into. In fact, in Jesus' day, there was a communal tradition that would have been performed if a girl, like in the first store, or if a guy like Hemingway decided, I want to start over. I want to come back home. There was a tradition that would be formed. If any of them would dare, these prodigals return to come, would dare to return to come home, the entire community had a tradition called Kezaza. And the tradition was like this. The whole community would gather upon the return with a clay pot. And as a symbol of how destructive this person had been, how they had broken relationship with the entire community, how they'd broken relationship with their family, how they'd broken from parental guidance, 
They would take this clay pot. And remember, this is a Middle Eastern culture, a very visual culture, a dramatic culture. And if this prodigal was to try to return home, the entire community would meet them at the gate upon their return. And in front of all of them as a symbol, they would take this clay pot and they would break it. They would break it. They would break the clay pot. And then, then a spokesperson for the community would say, they would take a shard, one of the shards of the broken clay pot, and say, this is the brokenness that you have caused in our community. You have broken everything that's good. You've broken trust. You've broken community. You've disappointed your family. You have broken your father's heart. The damage you've done is beyond repair. This here, see this? This is a symbol of your brokenness. They would say that right to their face. This is the broken pieces of your life. You are not whole. You're not family. You're not welcome. You are cut off. In fact, the Hebrew word for cut off was kezaza. And that's what they called this, this, this ceremony, the kezaza, the cutting off. And so the hope of ever coming home after screwing up, the idea of starting over, the notion that you could begin again in Jesus' day, absolutely not. And if you were a prodigal, and it was suggested, well, why don't you just come on home? Why don't you just start over as casual as that? Your response would be, why would I ever go back? I already feel terrible about myself. They will just make me feel worse. There was no grace. So into that world, Jesus brought this word, grace. And to help us understand it, he told a story. It's in Luke chapter 15. And it starts in verse 11 like this. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to the, his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So the father divided the property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off to a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went out and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And there he longed to fill his stomach with the pods of the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. I love this moment. Then he came to his senses. And he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and I'll go back to my father. Now I want to pause the story right there. Because here's what I want. What I want for you, okay? I want you not just to know it. Because some of you already know the story, and you know right up here grace. But I want you to feel the story. I want you to feel grace. So here's the story one more time. The sun comes up below, like a funeral for my hope, like a mirror. I was feeling like sin and bones I kept chasing after these ghosts I kept giving up on these hopes When I found your letter I am yours and yours alone Forgive me for my wandering on my own I'm the prodigal soul
start on something new Try to blame myself on you But my nightmares all came true I felt so unsteady I still see your face when I close my eyes And think about you wide awake at night And how far do I have to go to realize What I know already I am yours and yours Who is the son in the story? Who is the father in the story? And what did the son receive from the father? Go ahead, let, just, just whisper the word. Grace. Grace. Jesus tells the son he wanted to start over. And so he starts on this long walk back home. And I love, this is so interesting what happens here. It says this in verse 20, it says, While he was still a long way off, the father saw him, was filled with compassion for him, and he ran for the son, and he threw his arms around him and kissed him. All right, here's the question I have for you. Why is the father running? Why is the, why is the father running? He's running because he got a glimpse of his son, and he's running for love. It was his boy who's lost is now found, and he's, and he's running for love. But he's also running for another reason. He's running because others had gotten a glimpse of his son coming home. Word was now out in the community, and all the townspeople were now starting to gather near the city gate. 
They wanted to get to him because they wanted to perform the kezaza. They would not let him in the village. They would stop him outside the city gate. They would break the clay pot right in front of the boy. And you know what they'd tell him? They'd take that shard and they'd say, listen, you've broken everything that's good. You've broken trust. You've broken community. You've broken the heart of your father. Your damage is beyond repair. This here, see, this is a symbol of your brokenness. This is the broken pieces of your life. You're not whole. You're not family. You're not welcome. Kezaza, you are cut off. That was the reception the son expected. It may have been the reception the son deserved. But the father knew it was coming. And so what does the father do? The father, he takes off running. He humiliates himself in front of all of his neighbors, and he runs to protect his boy from the kezaza. And before anybody can say, no, you're cut off from us, what the father does is he intercepts, he swoops right in, and he wraps his arm around his son, and he smothers him with kisses. And the father was there to say, listen, with my son, there will be no kezaza. There will be no kezaza. Just grace. Because grace is that free, undeserved favor of God. And I want to I ask you this, okay? I want to ask you here and I want to ask you here. Do you understand that's the God who waits for you? When you want to start over for the first time, the second time, the tenth time, the hundredth time, the thousandth time, when you need forgiveness, when you want to find your way back to God, that is exactly how God responds to us. That's the God you're going to find. The God who runs to rescue us from shame and, and with open arms of love. Now, do you see why if I only get one message and one story and one word, that word is grace. And I'm telling you, grace is a big word for you individually. But I want to also say this too. Grace, grace is a big word for you as a church. There's, there's lots of things we can do well as churches. We can have great music. We can have great programs for, for students and children. We can do a great job serving. But guess what? There's lots of places where you can go for get great music. There's lots of places that have, have kids and, and student programming. There's lots of places that can actually mobilize people to serve the community. But there's only one thing the church alone can do, and that is offer grace. We are the sole dispenser of grace. Where else can people go to find grace except the church, the church of Jesus Christ? And so it's important for you, but it's also important for us as a church. One of my favorite moments in the life of our church occurred in this building, actually upstairs in our auditorium, with a, lady named, a young lady named Victoria. Victoria was being baptized, and as we always do, we will read their stories just prior to them getting baptized. We ask them to write it out, and then we'll read it for them, or sometimes they'll read it themselves. In this case, someone else was reading it. And her story went like this. At age nine, her family just stopped attending church. And she said, at that point, I just shut, shut the things of God out as pointless, and I began to pursue other things. She said, by the time I was in junior high, I didn't believe in God. And, and because of that, I was repeatedly told by Christian kids, oh, you're going to hell. So as a young adult, I began searching for things. I did get married, but I cheated on my first husband, and I destroyed that relationship. This is her story. She said, I began to seek happiness in sexual adventures, and I shattered relationship after relationship. And even in the process of pursuing sexual adventures, I ruined my career. She said, I moved across the country for another relationship, only to find it to be emotionally and physically and mentally abusive. So I finally decided to come back home. And when I did, I met a friend. He invited me to church with him, 
begrudgingly and skittishly and terrified the whole time that everyone would judge me as a non-believer, I showed up. Unsure, but with an open heart. I even tried a small group. And in that small group, I found some amazing people who helped me find my way back to God. That finished her story. And in that moment, I'll never forget this, Victoria was baptized. She went down into the water. And then when she came back up, she thrust her fist into the air. And the whole auditorium, like a thousand plus seats, the whole auditorium filled with people just erupts in raucous applause. They're just cheering for. And it's like, in that moment, when like cheering and applauding wasn't enough, all of a sudden it was like a tidal wave. People just started going, coming to their feet. It was an entire standing ovation. And as she starts waving back at people. And it was, as I looked around, it was like in that moment, the whole church was declaring, we've heard your story. We know your story. Welcome back. And guess what? In this church, there will be no kezaza. There will be no cutting off. Because this is a place of grace. See, grace is this thing, when it's understood by me and by you, we know it both here, but we also know it here. And we know there is nothing that we can do to make God love us more, and there's nothing we can do to make God love us less. It's that free, undeserved favor of God, and it's yours for the taking. And really, there's only two responses to grace. And the first one is this, and this is for you today, just to receive it. Receive it. Accept the gift, the free, undeserved favor of God. That son, the son didn't come back and do anything to deserve grace. He just walked right into the Father's embrace. And I'm telling you, whether it's the first time, the tenth time, or the one thousandth or ten thousandth time, just receive it. And then as a community, when other prodigals show up at your city gate, you're there to give it, to give it, to say, this will be a place of grace. Remember, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing you can do to make God love you less. It's the free, undeserved favor of God, and it's yours for the taking. In a word, grace. Let's pray. Father God, we all come to you as prodigals. For some of us, it's the very first time. For the others of us, it's yet again. And we do. We just say thank you for your grace. We receive your grace. And Lord, help us as a community to always be a place of grace. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.